Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening where we continue our reflections into the book of Revelation. This Monday, we will engage chapter 16, and a chapter that continues to have us reflecting and really marveling, dare I say, into the continuity of not only the book of Revelation itself, how one chapter leads to the next, and how once you see one chapter in light of the other, it can be better understood, but also the Old and the New Testament. I know a number of you out there have replied to uh, this radio program, this study on the book of Revelation, and have wanted to talk about that very thing, how you have been surprised to see how there's so much Old Testament in the book of Revelation, and how that has helped you better understand not only the book of Revelation, but sacred scripture itself. And, And for that, I am grateful, because if we are going to be good students of the Bible, we are only going to be as good as we understand that truth, that principle, that the old reveals the new and the new reveals the old, that we see sacred scripture as one drama of salvation history. It's like reading any book, right? You never start a book and say chapter 48 or 49, but isn't that what we do when we open up the Bible and go to the Gospel of Matthew, disregarding all of the Old Testament, or maybe We just don't simply read the book of Genesis in the light that it's the first chapter in a 73-chapter book, huh? Because as we know, sacred scripture has 73 books. So we are made to interpret sacred scripture as one single book with 73 chapters. And when we do this, our scripture study is enriched a hundredfold. And it's exciting stuff. I know a number of you out there have been very excited about studying this particular book based upon that truth. Once you begin to see how God is so attentive to the minutia, if you will, of how Christ is the fulfillment of the prophetic thrust of the Old Testament, uh, it is striking. It really is striking. So with that, we again will engage chapter 16, and we will do so once again, really getting into this principle of continuity. Now, that being said, we should say from the outset, after the frightening events that accompany the opening of the seals and the sounding of the trumpets in, in Revelation chapters 6, 8, and 9, which were what, but intended as invitations to conversion, John now reports a vision of God's final judgment on evil in the world, depicted symbolically as the pouring out of seven bowls of wrath. If the events following the opening of the seals depict tragedies typical of human history, conquest, violence, famine, pestilence, and the events following the sounding of the trumpets represent an escalation in which natural disasters and and demonic torments strike the people of earth to press them towards repentance, the seventh trumpet and the ensuing seven bulls bring final judgment on those who, who persist in doing evil. Now, the chalice judgments bring to completion the partial judgments of the seven trumpets. 
Uh, this can be seen in the way the two judgments parallel each other. Moreover, as we have touched upon before, just as the seven trumpets evoke the imagery of the plagues of Egypt, so too do the chalice judgments. Michael Barber gets into this in Coming Soon. Pay close attention because I believe this to be fascinating. If you were to go back into chapter 8, verse 7, and the seven trumpets, we read, On the land, one-third of the earth trees grass and burned. In the seven chalices, you read, On the land becoming sores, in chapter 16, verse 2. And what does this correspond with? The boils, right? The sixth plague that is described in Exodus chapter 9, verses 8 to 12. How about chapter 8, verse 9? Sea becomes blood on the sea. One-third of the sea becomes blood. One-third of the sea creatures die, and one-third of the ships are destroyed. While in chapter 16, verse 3, as we will read here in a little bit, we read, on the sea becoming blood. Now, how does this correspond with the ten plagues of Egypt? Waters become blood in the first plague, Exodus chapter 7, verses 17 to 21. How about the seven trumpets? Chapter 8, verses 10 to 11. What did we read there? But on the rivers and springs, one-third of the waters become wormwood. In chapter 16, verses 4 to 7, we read, On rivers and springs becoming blood. Once again, how does this correspond? Well, the waters become blood in the first plague. In chapter 8, verse 12, with the seven trumpets, we read that one-third of the sun, moon, and stars darkened. In chapter 16, Verses 8 to 9, we read, on the sun, causing it to scorch. And of course, this reflects the ninth plague in Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 to 23, and the plague darkness. How about chapter 9, verses 1 to 12 in the book of Revelation? Wherein, talking about the seven trumpets, we read about the demonic locusts tormenting men. And in chapter 16, verses 10 to 11, we will read, on the throne of the beast causing darkness. This reflects not only the ninth plague, but also the eighth plague in Exodus chapter 10, verses 4 to 20, and the locusts. And there are a number of other parallels, but you get the point. The trumpets were only partial judgments. While the trumpets only brought judgment on a third of the land, the chalices bring about total devastation. Furthermore, the chalices are not interrupted like the other judgments were. Between the fifth and sixth seals, John paused and narrated the vision of the 144,000 and the great multitude. Similarly, the vision of the mighty angel from heaven and the two witnesses separated the sixth and seventh trumpets. Here, however, the chalices are seen in rapid-fire succession with no analogous intermission, and this is intentional that we grab, of course, the significance of this moment. All right, so for that as a prelude, let us get into chapter 16, verses 1 to 7. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured his bowl on the earth, and foul and evil sores came upon the men who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a dead man, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured his bowl into the rivers and fountains of water, and the fountains of water, and they became blood, 
And I heard the angel of water say, Just start thou in these thy judgments, thou who art and was, O Holy One. For men have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink. It is their due. And I heard the altar cry, Yea, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are thy judgments. So, since these plagues, unlike the trumpets, bring full judgments, the saints change the words of their prayer. Huh? In previous chapters, the Lord was described as the one who was, is, and is to come. Remember what we talked about there in chapter 1, verse 4, and I think it came up also in, in chapter 4, verse 8. Now is in chapter 11, he is simply called the one who art and was. His coming is no longer anticipated, you see. He has arrived, which is a widely important point up to this point in chapter 16. Now, who exactly are the men who have shed the blood of saints and prophets? They can be no other than the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for it is there that prophets were killed. In the gospel, Jesus explained that he must go to Jerusalem and be crucified. What do we read in Luke chapter 13, verse 33? For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Furthermore, is Jerusalem not described as the place where their Lord was crucified? All right. So, just as old Egypt persecuted God's people and held them in slavery, so now Jerusalem, having turned on God's people, is described as the new Egypt. It is wholly appropriate, therefore, that the judgment upon this new Egypt is described in terms of what? Well, what did we just go through? But the plagues that fell upon the old Egypt. The first plague has a slight ring of poetic justice, does it not? Those who once bore the mark of the beast now bear the marks of sores and boils. In this we see certainly the true effect of the mark of the beast. It is disfiguring a punishment that fits the crime. As for the second and third chalices, we see how the water, a basic necessity for life, is slowly, but my dear friends, surely taken away. First with the sea, then with the water remaining in the rivers and fountains. And as in the Exodus, the water turns to blood. Blood is all that is left to drink. What is that great prophecy that comes to us from Isaiah chapter 49, verse 26? They shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. As with wine. Wow. Okay, how about verses 8 to 11? The fourth angel poured his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues, as they did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was in darkness. Men gnawed at their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores and did not repent of their deeds. So the fifth chalice brings intense heat, which is all the more unbearable due to the fact that all the water has turned into blood. I mean, let's think about this practically, huh? I mean, this truly is a punishment. 
I mean, with no fresh water, the people have no way to refresh themselves, right? The fate of the wicked is the exact opposite of that of the saints. Of whom it is said, what in Revelation 7.16, the sun shall not strike at them, nor any scorching heat. Scorching heat. And as the chalice is poured out on the throne of the beast, darkness comes upon the beast's empire. Does it not? As we've already said, right, darkness was the ninth plague that fell upon Egypt. It was the last plague then before the final judgment. And what was the final judgment? The death of the firstborn, right? Similarly, darkness appears here as one of the last chalice judgments before the final destruction of the city. So clearly, clearly something is going on here. And we are made to see how this can only be understood in the light of the continuity of sacred scripture that we have already talked about. Some have seen the plague of darkness as reflecting the historical situation to Rome, which would be a fair reflection. When Nero died, there was utter confusion and chaos in the Roman Empire. Their judgment came upon the throne of the beast, we could say, right? Casting the kingdom into a state of darkness. There is reason, however, of course, to see this as a description of Jerusalem before the destruction of the temple. The reoccurring image of the wicked refusing to repent, even in the face of calamities and plagues, paints a picture of Jerusalem as the new Egypt, even though God sent plague after plague upon Egypt. And despite Moses' pleading, Pharaoh remained obstinate in his hard heart. Likewise, the wicked new Egypt refused to what? Acknowledge the Lord. This theme of obstinacy also dominates the already much talked about Josephus' description of the destruction of the temple. You see, my friends, Josephus explains that when it was clear that Jerusalem would be destroyed, the Romans continually urged the people to surrender and repent of their rebellious ways, their rebelliousness. He records how Titus tortured the leaders of the rebel movement in full view of the city so that, listen to his words, they would now at length leave off their madness and not force him to destroy the city, whereby they would have those advantages of repentance, even in their uttermost distress, that they would preserve their own lives, and so find a city of their own, and that temple which was their peculiar. Josephus himself even pleaded with them to repent and surrender. Just as John speaks of the people of the new Babylon cursing God, Josephus writes, they seem to me to have cast a reproach upon God himself as if he were too slow in punishing them. So here you can appreciate once again the historical context that the first century Jewish historian Josephus brings. All right, how about the sixth chalice? Let us turn to chapter 16, verse 12. The sixth angel poured his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. 
Now, the marching army, which comes from the east, draws on the imagery from the prophets Isaiah and Daniel, both of whom, as you probably know by now, referred to judgment as coming from what direction? The east. If you were to go to Isaiah chapter 46, verse 11, and Daniel chapter 11, verse 44, this is what you read. And this is, in fact, what happened when? In 70 A.D., where the Romans crossed over the Euphrates on their way to demolish Jerusalem, coming from the east. Another Old Testament illusion may be found in John's description of the water drying up. The Old Testament prophets frequently linked judgment with such an occurrence. Here in Revelation, the water is dried up so that a path can be made for the coming armies. Does this not recall the parting of the Red Sea, which God worked on Israel's behalf? Now, however, God has turned his power against the wicked in Israel. Do you see how God so subtly there turned something upside down so that in the end it might be turned right side up? That's how God works, my friends. He's constantly revealing himself in unconventional ways. And there's always a almost poetic twist to it. That's God's way, by the way, of getting our attention when we read the old in light of the new and the new in light of the old. All right, how about chapter 16, verses 13 to 14? And I saw issuing from the mouth of the dragon and from the mouth of the beast and from the mouth of the false prophet three foul spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits, performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Okay, so this would have been another correlation that I just didn't go through all of them, but certainly you hear frogs and what do you think about? But the ten plagues. Now what's interesting is here, according to the Levitical Code of Law, if you were to go to Leviticus chapter 11, verses 9 to 12 and verses 41 to 47, Frogs are unclean, which then makes them an appropriate symbol for what? But demons. You know, I know for many of you out there, you go to read the Bible. You make this New Year's resolution. You say to yourself, you want to know what? I am going to read the whole Bible from start to finish, okay, which has you in Genesis for a little while. You know, you gain some momentum, and then you get into Exodus, and you might make it into Numbers, but you get into Leviticus and Deuteronomy and you just put the Bible down, right? Why? Because there's all these laws and all these codes. But you see, my friends, they have a place. And here is an example of why they have a place. We can better understand <laughs> Revelation chapter 16, verses 13 to 14, and why frogs might be an appropriate symbol for demons. Okay, so the Three unclean spirits proceed from the three primary figures, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. With this plague of demonic frogs, demonic activity reaches its climax and wickedness envelops the land. Certainly, these spiritual realities were the impetus behind the indescribable madness and ruthlessness that seized both the Jews and the Roman soldiers in 70 A.D., Josephus explains how soldiers acted without orders, and even against them in some cases, taking their hatred out on the Jews with savage results. Listen to what Josephus says here. 
Then did Caesar, both by calling to the soldiers that were fighting and by giving a loud signal to them with his right hand, order them to quench the fire that began to burn down the temple. But they did not hear what he said. Neither any persuasions nor any threatenings could restrain their violence. But each one's own passion was his commander at this time. You hear that line from Josephus? Their passion was their commander. Have we ever fell into that trap? You just kind of disregard reason. You give in to your emotions. And it wells up in this passion, this irrational passion. It becomes like a lieutenant instructing you what to do. Huh? Mm. Josephus continues, And as they were crowding into the temple together, many of them were trampled by one another, while a great number fell among the ruins. Now, round about the altar lay dead bodies heaped upon one another, as at the steps going up to it ran a great quantity of their blood. Wow. I mean, to read Josephus, my dear friends, is really to gain a deeper understanding of the gravity of what was going on in 70 AD. Yet could we not say that the wickedness of the Romans pales in comparison to what Josephus says about his own people? Josephus explains how a certain group of Roman soldiers followed the smell of food into the city into one woman's house. Upon entering her house, they were horrified to discover a mother who had taken her own infant son, nursed him, and cooked his flesh to eat. Chillingly, she reassured the soldiers that she had saved a very fine portion of it for them. Oh my goodness. In this, we can recall Isaiah 49, verse 26, I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh. Wow. False prophets frequently rise up to proclaim deliverance in time of divine judgment. Pharaoh consulted his magicians who worked signs similar to Moses. Similarly, before the Babylonians came to destroy Jerusalem, false prophets reassured the people saying, what, peace, peace. Not surprisingly then, false prophets arose in, in 70 AD, foretelling victory over the Romans. Even as the city was burning down, the people were urged to persist in suicidal attempts to recover the city. Josephus records, Now there was a great number of false prophets called by the tyrants to impose upon the people that they should wait for deliverance from God. And this was in order to keep them from deserting. All right, verse 15. Lo, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is he who is awake, keeping his garments that he may not go naked and be seen exposed. And I think Revelation chapter 16, verse 15, is a verse that when we hear, it shakes us up a little bit. Blessed is he who is awake, keeping his garments that he may not go naked and be seen exposed. The warning recalls Jesus' warning in chapter 3. There Jesus says, Therefore I counsel you to buy from me white garments to clothe you and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen. Revelation 3 verse 18. What does this imagery evoke? What have we talked about throughout this narrative? If we are in the book of Revelation and we are going to read this book as we ought to read any book, 
Where should we go here? The book of Revelation is the last chapter of the great book, the Bible. And God is coming full circle, which means we have to go back to Genesis, huh? The imagery of nakedness. Does it not call to mind the sin of Adam and Eve and the fallen state that resulted from it? And remember what we said about Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, and how we talked about, yeah, Adam was there in the garden, but we didn't know he was there because he was silent. He failed in his vocation as, as high priest to lay down his life for his bride. And Jesus atones for that silence by crying out in the garden. And what's more, just as Eve came from the side of Adam, so does the new bride, symbolized in the blood and water, the Eucharist and baptism, come from the side of Christ. Now, why am I talking about this? Well, again, because when you hear nakedness, it has us going back to the garden. But what's more, what was the sin of the garden? But the sin of pride, yes. The sin of wanting to be like God, yes. But also the sin of omission. The sin of not doing what God is calling you to do. In Revelation chapter 16, verse 15, we read, Blessed is he who is awake. We must be vigilant. We must be sober, not intoxicated with things of the world, but rooted in a relationship with Jesus Christ. The only way we are going to see what we need to see is by living in a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ, a relationship that is fixed on one thing, the person of Jesus Christ. To talk about seeing and to bring up nakedness is to go to that beatitude that talks about what? Purity. Blessed are the pure in spirit, for they shall see God. For they shall see God. Now remember the word for pure or purity in the Greek translates as where one thing is not mixed with another. So it speaks to a clean heart, a heart that has not been stained by sin, a heart that is not filled with lust, a heart that is not consumed by its passions. No, but a heart that is free to love God, a heart that is free to love God. And yeah, so it is right to go back to the Garden of Eden. Because my friends, if it is in fact pride and the other sins that I talked about, then it means that the counter virtue alongside of purity that will help us attain this vision of seeing what we need to see then is humility. Because humility does not concern itself with protecting the false self. Because the humble person is always true to who he is. He does not try to be something that he's not. And he accepts all that comes his way. The humble person understands that God permits all things for one thing, salvation. Okay, I'm looking up at the clock and we are out of time. Let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. 
If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.